Hello and welcome to the latest Tech Disputes Network podcast um, from our Need to Know Basis series, which aims to provide succinct summaries by the leading experts of the most important breaking developments in the field of technology-related disputes. My name is Mike Cohen-Bruce. I'm a litigation funder at Benchwalk Advisors and one of the co-founders of the TDN, which I encourage you and everyone you know to join immediately via disputes.tech to receive more free tech disputes-related insight. This podcast is on the topic of the recent Supreme Court decision in Triple Point Technology Inc. and PTT Public Company Limited. This was a decision that will be familiar to many listeners coming from an IT and construction projects disputes background, given the centrality of delay and the related applicability of liquidated damages to so many disputes in those fields. For those listeners not so fortunate as to work in IT and construction project disputes, Triple Point and PTT saw the Supreme Court decide on, among other things, whether an employer's contractual rights to liquidated damages is limited to work actually completed, albeit late, prior to termination of contract. I'm very fortunate to be able to welcome James Howes, QC of Atkin Chambers, Robert Fido of Watson, Farley and Williams, and Matthew Walker of KNL Gates. James was leading counsel for PBTT, the successful appellant and one of the preeminent IT project dispute silks in the jurisdiction. Instructing him in that matter was Robert Fido, a partner in Watson, Farley, Williams market leading complex infrastructure disputes practice. Also on our panel is Matthew Walker, a vastly experienced partner and construction law specialist. Mike, thank you, yes. So PTT, as many people will know, is um, the Thai government-owned uh, oil major. It has made its major business in the ASEAN region, but also globally. It's a vertically, vertically integrated um, oil and gas company. Um, Triple Point Technology is a um, largely US-based, but um, uh, again, global software house, um, whose main focus of business through its package proprietary software is commodities trading and risk management software for um, commodities markets. Uh, PTT undertakes trading um, uh, in global markets, both in petrochemicals and other markets as well, and was looking for a replacement system for its bespoke system, which by the time of the contract was getting rather long in the tooth um, and required replacement. Uh, The system was intended and procured on the basis that it would provide an integrated system uh, to, to provide PTT with a replacement, at least in the first instance, um, to its trading and hedging uh, uh, functionalities, uh, primarily out of its Bangkok headquarters, but was also to integrate with um, uh, new trading systems, or new trading um, business rather, to take place in PTT's Singapore office and its Dubai functions as well. It was to provide an integrated system, um, not just for trading and hedging, in the commodities markets, but also to um, provide risk management um, systems related to its hedging functionality and also uh, charter party management, PTT having a major charter party business um, for its oil and gas operations, both for its own oil and gas, but others as well in the region. Um, the system was to be integrated um, and was to come in two parts. As I said, the first part was to be a replacement system. The second part was to be um, the provision through Triple Point's uh, package software, particularly its commodities um, and hedge- hedging systems, um, for new uh, functionalities in new markets. Uh, the procurement of the system um, was uh, undertaken on a competitive basis. Uh, Triple Point uh, won out. Uh, the CT- as part of the process of negotiation, which we investigated at the trial, uh, there was a lengthy negotiation between the parties, leading to a contract of some 500 pages long, a contract which many IT people recognise in terms of length, and I suspect many will recognise in terms of the mess that was caused as, pe- as the parties tried to and, uh, include not just the conditions of contract, but pretty much every part of their negotiation that preceded it, including hundreds of, uh, of functional specifications, but also large parts of the discussion between the parties during tender as to the commercial and functionality as well. The contract got off to a bad start. Um, TPT, Triple Point, fell into delay at a very early stage, pretty much within weeks of starting. The trial judge found that that was entirely Triple Point's fault uh, and that uh, PTT had not contributed to delay. 
the parties um, fell out uh, in, a, in a royal fashion. Uh, it took about a year um, before the parties uh, came to a point where they met in, in Singapore to try and resolve their disputes as to what the delays were uh, and what they would do to try and move forwards. They agreed that out of some 10 milestones that existed for the two parts of the contract, um, Triple Point would be treated as having basically met the first and PTT would make payment on that basis, which it did. Uh, within weeks afterwards, a Triple Point demanded further payments of some $5 million. Uh, the contract price was about $6 million, um, on the basis that it had issued invoices on an ongoing basis um, for works um, towards implementation. A PTT refused to pay on the basis the works hadn't been done and that wasn't what had been agreed. Um, and the party, uh, at Triple Point, then refused to carry on. Uh, another 11 months to a year passed, at which point both parties had attempted to negotiate a, a resolution, failed, uh, and each had, had decided not to carry on. Uh, Triple Point commenced proceedings in the Technology and Construction Court in London, and PTT uh, exercised its contractual and legal rights to terminate the contract because Triple Point had basically refused to carry on. Uh, and then we started in the TCC in 2015. Uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, Rob? Yes, thank you, Mike. Um, so the original claim commenced by Triple Point in the TCC was February 2015, and that was a claim brought for failures by, or alleged failures by PTT to pay software licenses and, and maintenance fees. Uh, Triple Point later went on to amend its claim form to add further claims on interest, implementation services, and return of, of a contractual performance security bond. In making its claims for payment of software license fees, Triple Point argued that the parties had agreed a series of, of separate but interrelated contracts, being the CTRM contract itself and three related order forms, uh, and argued that those separate interrelated contracts contained standalone payment obligations. Part of Triple Point's argument was that the software development fees were payable by certain dates, regardless of achievement of milestones in the project. In defence to Triple Point's claims as to the contractual relationship between the parties, PTT argued that the order forms, uh, which themselves contained the licence agreement between the parties, formed part of the CTRM contract and were to be construed in light of it. It also argued that the terms contained within those order forms were to be construed in the context of the contract as a whole, including by reference to an entire agreement clause within the licence agreement, which itself included an express provision as to the CTRM contract terms prevailing, should there be any conflict between them and, and the terms of the licence agreement itself. The CTRM contract also contained further provisions as to an order of precedence between it and the order forms slash licence agreement that were exhibited to it, again making clear the primacy of the, of the CTRM main contract terms. PT, PTT also counterclaimed for breaches of contract on termination of the party's contracts, and those counterclaims were in, spec, in respect of around 630,000 US dollars in wasted costs in respect of hardware, hardware that was purchased before termination, around 3.5 million in liquidated damages per the, contract, per the contractual provisions for the same. Uh, that's clause five, which of course became the main point of contention later on, which states that the contractor shall be liable to pay the penalty at the rate of 0.1% of undelivered work per day of delay from the due date for delivery up to the date PTT accepts such work. PTT also counterclaimed termination losses of around $10.5 million in costs of procuring a replacement system. The, the breach of contract claims that were brought by PTT were founded predominantly on the delay in performance of the contract and the failure to meet milestones, but also uh, the position that that delay was caused by Triple Point's failure to exercise reasonable skill, care and diligence in the performance of its services, including failures to carefully plan, programme or manage the project, um, failures to provide sufficient numbers of suitably qualified staff, failures to conduct adequate business analysis or produce the business blueprints that were required under the contract, 
and also failures to follow internationally recognised and applied methodologies for the design, development and implementation of the software. And, and this was by reference to a specific clause 12.1 of the contract uh, setting out that duty to exercise all reasonable skill and care. Triple point per its reply and defence to counterclaim denied liability, citing alleged failure to cooperate by PTT as a major cause of delay, and also raising arguments of force majeure in the context of civil unrest that had impacted Bangkok uh, and impacted triple point staff to work in Bangkok or Thailand generally for a period. Whilst that was given short shrift for want of causation, the, the, the force majeure point was, was one I remember quite well myself as I was living in Bangkok at the time with a young family. Um, finally, Triple Point also relied on the damages cap clause in the contract, again something that comes up in, in the later appeals, that's clause 12.3, and Triple Point essentially said that meant its liability should be limited to the contract price received by it up to that point, which was a little over $1 million dollars for the for the one milestone that had been met. Um, PTT argued in turn that cap didn't apply as a result of an express carve out for negligence in it. And and I just quickly state what that provision says because again that comes up later later on. Uh, so that provided it's the end of clause 12.3 that the limitation of liability shall not apply to contractors liability resulting from fraud negligence gross negligence or willful misconduct of the contractor or any of its officers employees or agents thank you very much um, so the judgment of first instance uh, rather than focusing on all of it, I'd like to highlight on a few of the interesting topics that ultimately became the issues of contention in the case itself. Um, I think it's fair to say, and perhaps I can be forgiven for being a cheerleader for the Technology and Construction Court, but it's a tremendous judgment. It's extremely detailed. Uh, it runs to, I think, 291 paragraphs in total. I think, uh, and as somebody who wasn't involved in the case but sort of sits and reads it as an outside observer... Um, I particularly like the fact that Mrs Justice Jefford, who's the, uh, the judge uh, in the TCC case, which took place uh, towards the end of 2016, sort of late November and into December 2016, and then with a, another sitting day in January 2017, um, that she goes into quite a lot of detail, in fact, talking about the witnesses themselves, um, how she found their evidence. She talks quite a bit about the expert witnesses. And I think it's a salutary reminder for all of those uh, of us who are involved in litigation and arbitration, that it's not simply what you put on the paper, um, but it's actually the, how the evidence is delivered in court that will ultimately really count. Um, I think in particular, she was quite critical of a couple of the witness statements, which she felt were just read like a document that had been put in front of somebody to sign rather than a living, breathing document um, you know, that became part of a proper piece of witness evidence in, in the trial itself. And I think we're going to see more of that um, in in the next few years. There's already talks about pilots to change um, how witness evidence is given in court, and I think we'll see more of that. And uh, if anything, you know, the the first instance judgment is absolutely um, part of that that sort of movement towards um, updating evidence. So, as I say, 291 paragraphs in total. And for those of you who have got the time to read the judgment, I would certainly commend it to you. Um, Mrs Justice Jefford goes into quite a lot of detail, splits the case up in, in effect into eight separate sections. Um, so she deals with introduction, contract formation, express and implied terms, breach, suspension, force majeure, termination and damages. And obviously you just heard Rob mention a couple of those, certainly force majeure. Uh, actually... The bit that becomes, um, as we will discover, um, the the sort of the the real meat of the, um, uh, the the appeals as they go up the, the the chain is the damages section and looking at how um, the the force sorry how how the liquidated damages clause was intended to operate and what the parties did or did not agree in terms of how it would operate. Um, Broadly, in, uh, as an outsider reading the first instance judgment, um, my my view on it was that it was a, a very lucid, clear, relatively straightforward um, judgment in terms of 
the decisions that Mrs Justice Jefford made. Um, I did not feel that there was anything uh, particularly novel or um, unusual in the way in which she had analysed the clauses. Um, I think in particular, for instance, when it comes to the liquidated damages provisions, there is a, a clear reference to Cavendish and MacDessie, which we all know is the sort of the, uh, the current thinking of the English legal system from the Supreme Court down as to how liquidated damages clauses are to be uh, understood and interpreted. Uh, and so she dealt with that in a very straightforward manner. She looked at liquidated damages. And you can almost be forgiven for sort of um, uh, not realising that the point that was going to become contentious had really been that contentious in the first instance hearing. It was simply, you know, she applied the clause as it had been written. She determined that liquidated damages would apply up until the point of termination and thereafter it was general damages. And then she goes into a, a sort of a, an analysis of how the general damages clause was intended to operate as far as she um, was concerned, um, uh, found that it would have applied to the entirety of the damages, and so something like $10.8 million, I think, for a replacement system, but that it was capped out because that was what the parties had agreed in clause 12.3, which you heard about a short while ago. I think one of the particularly interesting things, and perhaps we'll come on to it a little bit later in the discussion, is, is what was found at first instance in respect of the negligence clause that you just heard about in, in 12.3. So far as um, Mrs Justice Jeffer was concerned, negligence did not apply to um, uh, breach of contract claims and that it was essentially intended to be a freestanding analysis of where there had been negligence as a separate um, cause of action in respect of losses. Um, So I think that was... Um, uh, you know, a particularly interesting part of that judgment. And, I, and uh, you know, as I'm sure you'll hear, that becomes quite contentious as it goes up the chain to the Court of Appeal and then Supreme Court. Thank you very much for that, um, that summary. Um, uh, moving on to uh, James now to talk a bit about the Court of Appeal and what happened there. Thank you. Um, yes, so Court of, court of Appeal stage. Um, interesting, Matt picked up on the uh, the fact that it's quite difficult to tell from the first instance judgment um, what the contentious, what the truly contentious issue became in this case, um, for the very reason it was never argued in the first instance. Um, it wasn't raised by Triple Point. Triple Point's argument at first instance on liquidated damages was that the LDs were a penalty, and that perfectly explains why Cavendish was the primary focus of the judge, quite rightly so, and she decided it correctly. Um, it also wasn't really argued in the Court of Appeal either. Quite interestingly, um, Triple Point had put in its um, permission to appeal documents, and there were about three grounds of appeal. The first one was penalty again. Uh, the second one doesn't really matter too much. The third one, in a passing reference, uh, said, well, the liquidated damages aren't payable because we didn't complete the works. About a sentence, I think, in the, in the documents. Uh, not a point taken forward in the skeleton argument, and not a point raised in the oral arguments for Triple Point, until about the afternoon of the first day, when Sir Rupert Jackson stopped my opponent and said, Mr. Um, X, um, you've raised this in your grounds of appeal, but you've not argued it. What, what's your position on this? At which point um, my opponent said, well, something, and not very much. And the judge then said, well, I think there's a case about that. Um, it's called British Glanstoff. And I'd like to hear some more about it, please. Uh, at which point we were all sent off uh, that night to do some homework, uh, which we did and came back the next morning, girded to start talking about British Glanstoff, which none of us were expecting to argue about. And of course, that's become the key to the controversy in the, in the Court of Appeals uh, decision um, as it proceeded. The case uh, on, of Glanstoff, we argued about a bit in the second day. Um, and then over the coming days and weeks, of, by email, Sir Rupert Jackson asked further questions and effectively took the case through written submissions on email in the following weeks before the judgment came out. So a little bit uh, um, of, a, of a surprise to, to find that we were arguing a case which was never actually put forward by Triple Point in the first place. That's off my chest now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Court of Appeal thought the British Glanstoff was a very important case um, and that um, it should be and should have been in various cases in the past considered by a number of courts who've dealt with this issue. The issue as to what happens when a contract is terminated before completion uh, and liquidated damages um, have begun to accrue before completion. Now, the Court of Appeal, uh, this is Sir Rupert Jackson's judgment, with whom uh, Lord Justice Lewison, who was presiding, 
and not just as Floyd agreed, de- uh, decided that their, the approach to be taken to liquidated damages clauses in these sort of circumstances going forwards should be by reference to a categorisation that Sir Rupert Jackson set out in his judgment. And he saw three separate categories. The first category, which is a really contentious one, is the one which uh, Sir Rupert Jackson placed this clause into and hinted very heavily indeed that he thought uh, most liquidated damages clauses fell into um, by reference to British Landstoff. And the categorization he, or the description he gave of this category was um, that there, there are clauses uh, where either the wording is close enough to that in Glanstoff or on their construction, um, one should decide, or the, a court would determine that the liquidated damages um, would either not accrue at all until the work was actually complete, um, it says notwithstanding what the clause said about accrual, um, or in certain circumstances, it was rather unclear to, to be, um, well, it may sound rather unfair on the judge, he was rather unclear, um, but indicated that there were certain circumstances in which notwithstanding uh, the accrual of liquidated damages, so the commencement and the payment of them, or the recovery of them by the employer, um, before termination, if termination occurred before completion, the right to liquidated damages would be extinguished, which was very difficult indeed as a concept, and Rob, I think, will talk about it in just a second. The second category, um, which, he, which the judge, uh, Sir Rupert Jackson, said was the orthodoxy, is where we now are, and we'll discuss this later. It's the liquidated damages clause, the liquidated damages clause should be interpreted to provide for LDs to accrue from the event agreed by the parties, that is, a completion milestone usually, or the completion date, and will continue to accrue at the agreed rate um, up until either completion or if the contract is terminated earlier, um, either under the contract or for breach, until termination. And then they stop because they're a contractual um, right which stops when the contract stops. The third category the judge uh, identified based upon um, a decision of Mr Justice Coulson in the TCC, um, which had been followed in another, which was called Hall and van der Heiden, and another case which had followed it called GPP and Bigfield, um, which uh, had been decided in 2018, um, and a case in Hong Kong called Crestream and Potter Designs. Uh, the category three cases, um, the Court of Appeal doubted, but didn't expressly dismiss, um, would be decided, he said, in, certain, in the correct circumstances. Um, where liquidated damages would accrue from whatever date the parties had agreed under the contract, but would continue until completion, even if the contract was terminated beforehand. So liquidated damages continue past termination. Now, Jackson said that was, he thought that was wrong, probably, um, but he didn't specifically say that those cases were wrongly decided, leaving three categories. Um, The controversy, as I've said, arises from category one um, and the, the description that Sir Rupert Jackson gave of that category but also um, not just for the fact that it went against the orthodoxy but I think also for the fact that the description of the circumstances in which a clause would be interpreted that way was really rather vague and leaving people unclear about what it meant. I think Rob's going to tell you some more about the clause. Thanks James. Yep. So picking, picking up from there... I think everybody's heard about this case a lot, and so what I'm going to say next may not be particularly new or exciting. But but going back back to the basics, I mean, prior to that court of appeal judgment, the, the accepted orthodox position was that liquidated damages as a contractual remedy accrue for delay until the contract is terminated, at which point that that contractual right to liquidated damages ends uh, normally, and general damages are recoverable on the ordinary principles. Uh, and that cert- the certainty of that accepted orthodox position provided a, a level of security to those in the construction industry and their advisors as to what they could expect in terms of the application of, of various standard form contracts used across construction infrastructure and, and IT outsourcing sectors. The Court of Appeal judgment turned that on its head uh, in, in what the Supreme Court later called a, a radical reinterpretation of the case law on liquidated damages clauses that was inconsistent with commercial reality and the accepted function of liquidated damages. Um, It's unsurprising 
now, even more unsurprising in light of that, that the, the Court of Appeal decision was, was controversial at the time and caused significant concern. Neither the, the legal world nor the construction world welcome surprises, and, and that's not the way the system's designed to work, nor is it a welcome quality in circumstances where parties wish to have certainty and, and control over the balance of risk they take when they enter into incredibly complex and expensive projects whether that's for construction of physical or or technological infrastructure. A a primary reason the market was alarmed by the the move from the orthodox position was, I think, because it it suggested that where a project went into significant or severe delay, an, an employer who decides to terminate the contract for such delay could lose its accrued rights, the rights James was talking about, those those rights that had accrued to liquidated damages. If the employer chose to terminate before delayed work had been completed, or at least portions of that delayed work had been completed. Even more worryingly, perhaps, it suggested that a contractor in delay could positively seek to avoid liability for liquidated damages altogether by choosing to walk away from the project rather than complete or even partially complete the works. That is to say that a a contractor in delay might have an incentive to delay further or even repudiate the contract to avoid an otherwise accrued obligation to pay liquidated damages. That is assuming it believed that that general damages were avoidable, for example, due to to exclusion or caps on liability. I think there are further adverse practical effects of the change in in treatment or the potential change in treatment application of liquidated damages um, could result in an employer being liable to repay any liquidated damages that had been deducted or paid prior to termination, for example, in interim invoices. Um, Also, it could result in... any employer being required retrospectively to reformulate a claim for loss as general damages. Um, As for the Court of Appeals' conclusion that any injustice in the loss of liquidated damages would be mitigated or avoided by the employer falling back on its rights to general damages, these also raise some very serious concerns in the market as um, provisions for liquidated damages are, are generally employed where proof of loss for delay in general damages is likely to be difficult. Um, that's the reason for those provisions to be there in the first place. They're, they're also employed as an agreed mechanism for the allocation of risk, which is often balanced out by agreed limitations on the type or extent of alternative claims in damages. For example, loss of profit, or, as was the case in, in PTT, which of course makes perfect sense given the size and nature of PTT's global oil and gas trading business. Um, Also, in many construction and infrastructure standard form contracts, delay liquidated damages are expressed to be the sole remedy for delay to completion. Uh, So, in summary, the the Court of Appeals decision left the industry questioning what had until then been taken to be a settled and, and relatively certain area of law, and left many, particularly employers, with serious concerns as to the allocation of risk in in both ongoing and new projects. Thank you. I mean, understandably, that uh, decision was appealed up. Uh, Matthew, um, do you mind uh, telling us a bit about what happened next? Uh, yes. Um, thanks, Mike. So in the Supreme Court, and if you haven't read the Supreme Court judgment, the Supreme Court judgment came out the 16th of July, and it's, um, it's a really interesting judgment, actually. Um, it's not, uh, as Supreme Court judgments go, some can be quite sort of dense and impenetrable, um, but this is not one of those. Although I think it's a very interesting judgment, and I think it's going to be one of these that um, it will be um, talked about for some time, not merely because of the decision about liquidated damages, but as I think as we may have time to come on to, the, the decision about negligence is perhaps the one that's going to, I think, come up and be talked about a lot more in future. So let's, let's, let me try and deal with it as, as the proverbial game of two halves. The liquidated damages part of it, I think, was very clear, very succinct. All five judges, um, uh, justices in the Supreme Court, came to the, the same view as to what was intended by the liquidated damages provision. And in terms of, as I think James very helpfully explained earlier on, that sort of division into the three, the three types type two being the orthodox view as to what was intended to be um, a, a liquidated damages regime, um, the, the Supreme Court has fallen fully behind that. Um, I think there's a couple of paragraphs, frankly, that are worth reading out because I think they are very, very helpful. Leading judgment is actually given by Lady Arden. Um, I think she says at paragraph 30, um, 
uh, I, I find that this observation, and it's the observation about Glanstoff, I find this observation difficult to follow, as the clauses in question in Glanstoff were not said to be some market-accepted wording or clauses from some standard form recognised in the industry, where the interpretation of the courts in reported cases may in practice be treated as binding in later cases involving the same wording. With those exceptions, in general, the decision of one case as to the meaning and effect of a clause cannot be binding as to the meaning and effect of even a similar clause in another case. So that, I think that's a very sort of important sort of establishment of, if you like, the orthodoxy, not just of the orthodoxy as to what LD's clauses mean, but the fact that the, the Supreme Court's giving a very clear steer there. We're going to look at each contract on its terms and, you know, woe betide you trying to draw... Um, very sort of broad and far-reaching principles from one decision of the House of Lords back in 1913. I, I think it, in the other paragraph that really struck me um, is actually in Lord Leggett's, um, uh, um, uh, his judgment. Um, he has concurred with um, Lady Arden, but he goes on to sort of give a bit further explanation as to um, elements of the decision and particularly how he thought the liquidated damages clause should be construed. And, and I think he says at, at paragraph 79 uh, in the judgment, uh, in principle, therefore, where at the time of termination, delay for which liquidated damages are payable has already occurred, there is no reason in law or in justice uh, why term, termination of the contract should deprive the employer of its right to recover such damages unless the contract clearly provides for this. And so I think that, that in many ways, that's a, the, probably the clearest sort of statement that you could get. It's, if you like, for uh, liquidated damages provisions, it's that reassertion um, of, and it's one of the reasons why English law is so popular, is that the, whatever the parties agree upon, provided that the parties uh, language is clear about how it's intended to operate, the, the court will uphold that and will not interfere with that, and in particular will not seek to sort of interpret it in a really unorthodox or unexpected way. And so, in a sense, it's, it is a, if you'd like, a reassertion of the orthodoxy, which is that liquidated damages accrue up until termination, and thereafter it's general damages subject to whatever other provisions you know, the, the parties may or may not have agreed upon. So I think, you know, obviously there's been a lot of commentary about the liquidated damages clause because I think, as Robert has rightly said, it's really important for, you know, several industries, but, you know, particularly um, the technology industry, uh, but also I think related to this and, and, you know, construction industry, liquidated damages is obviously a massive part of most construction contracts. The oil and gas industry, I think um, they will find liquidated damages provisions, you know, and, and the findings of the English court very reassuring. So I think, you know, for all of those industries, and that's why I think a lot of the early commentary that we've seen in terms of, you know, people talking about the case, they focused on the LDs part of it, but largely because a, the decision of the Court of Appeal was was quite surprising and unexpected, and B, because I think it is really important for um, you know English law and you know, the use of English law in, in international contracts of this nature that the orthodoxy as to liquidated damages is re-established. I think where it's the dis, the judgment of the Supreme Court is going to become interesting, and I think perhaps the commentary will start to pivot in a, in a few months' time, is the findings that the court has made about negligence and, and exactly how negligence was supposed to play a role in this particular contract. Um, so there, interestingly, the Supreme Court was split essentially 3-2. Um, so you have um, uh, Lady Arden, Lord Leggett and Lord Burroughs uh, on one side of the court and then Lord Hodge, the Deputy President, and Lord Sales on the other side of the court. And, you know, the fact that it's Lord Hodge, you know, um, giving, I think, quite a forceful um, uh, opposing view as to Lady Arden as to what the negligence clause was meant to uh, meant in this particular contract, I think that's going, we're going to see that come up again. I'm not, from my perspective, I don't think that issue is, deter is settled, um, certainly not on a 3-2 with you know, the composition of the court in, as it was. I'll try and um, summarise it as succinctly as I can, but I'm sure 
James and, and Rob can, can, can give you some more detail. So far as I could read it, Lady Arden essentially drew a distinction between what she called obligations of result. Um, so these were effectively where there had needed to be a strict compliance um, un, in the contract and that there would be an end result as, uh, uh, as a, you know, in terms of the compliance of that. So, for instance, uh, non-infringement of IP, um, protection of confidential information, um, obligations as to audit. These are all very sort of clear, there's an end result, you have to comply, and that's that. Interestingly, she felt that the um, completion, uh, time for completion, was an obligation of result and would be categorised along with those. Um, And that, therefore, um, you know, a breach of the contractual warranty to perform those um, with... It was somehow um, would fall in, into that definition of of the uh, of the cap and would not be covered by negligence. I think that's right, although it's hard to follow. James, uh, yes. Yeah, so on, on that last point, I think the, what's happened is um, the liquidated damages um, obviously relate to breach, uh, in respect to completion and delay, um, and one has to cast one's mind right back to Jeff, Mr. Justice Jeffords' judgment to understand why. Um, the, the Supreme Court ended up treating the damages as part of the, like, the negligence exception because the judge had found in terms that the delayed completion was caused by all of the allegations of negligent breach by PTT. So failure to manage, failure to design, failure to undertake the business consultancy work. So the delay was caused by negligence, which got us into the, into the cap. Um, otherwise, you say on, on the second part of the... Um, exclusion clause, they, we would have lost. Um, so probably if I, if I now carry on to talk a bit about um, what the Supreme Court has done, both with liquidated damages, but also the, the um, limitation clause um, element of the case. Um, liquidated damages, on one view, I think as, as both Matt and Rob have been um, indicating throughout, uh, and I agree with, one may take the view that the Supreme Court's decision on liquidated damages just restores the orthodoxy. I mean, that what they did was was they were quite heavily critical, I think, of the reasoning and approach in the Court of Appeal uh, as the categorisation for the reasons Matt gave, um, uh, but also to the result as well on this particular clause. Um, uh, and both Lady Arden, well, all of them, but Lady Arden and Lord Leggett providing the reasons they all agreed with, um, said that on the, on the wording of this clause that Rob gave you earlier, there's almost no way of interpreting this to mean that you can't have liquidated damages from the day upon which you fail to meet your, your completion obligation, in this case, each one of the milestones. Um, so in that sense, completely orthodox, and I think, as Matt said at the beginning, um, a confirmation of the way that Mrs. Dr. Jefford looked at the clause. Um, things to look for, I think, in the, in the in Supreme Court judgment on liquidated damages... Um, the, I think the exposition by Lady Arden, which is paragraph 35, I think, of the of a sort of commercial, common sense um, context view of why liquidated damages exist in these contracts is, is worth reading. I think it's also um, informative for, for the audience that we have today um, that Lady Arden expressly recognised, not in the judgment as written, but certainly when she introduced the judgment, um, when handing down online, this was the first time the Supreme Court have looked at an IT contract. So it's the first time I think the Supreme Court have thought about the structure of an IT contract like this. Um, and I think um, it, it, that has a ref- that reflects a bit on declared damages, although actually it is the orthodoxy. I think more importantly, like I think both Rob and Matt have been indicating, and I, I fully agree with what they've said about the fact this case is probably much more interesting long term. Uh, when one thinks about the limitation clause here and the reasoning the Supreme Court um, adopted and have indicated ought to be used in future on a limitation clause. Interesting, I think, for people, uh, those working in the IT industry, um, for the fact that this marks the the first attempt, if you like, of the Supreme Court to analyse an IT contract and to think about the structure of that contract and how it operates in real life. Um, picking up on the point about negligence, one of the hallmarks, I think, from experience of dealing with IT sort of design, implementation and maintenance um, projects, uh, which you see in, um, obviously, particularly in government outsourcing, but um, insurance, finance, the, the sort of complex business systems, which start these days primarily from packaged software being um, uh, uh, tailored or configured 
with often bits of design attached. The obligations of a of the of the software house or the software company in the, in those circumstances is design obligations. So quite obviously, like Henderson and Merritt type case will involve um, either explicit or implied obligations to undertake design, consultancy, advice work, exercising reasonable skill and care. And that is the, is the hallmark of the early stages of, a, of an implementation project up until go live. And, and this was no different. What Lady Arden's judgment, I think, does, and it does well, is to, is to identify that's what's going on in this case, and that's why the negligence exclusion was, or the exception to the exclusion was important. Because I think what, what had gone wrong in the earlier stages, and this is uh, to recognise that we've argued and failed twice on this particular argument at first instance and court of appeal, um, is the judge, with respect, and Rupert Jackson, with even greater respect, had failed to appreciate that what they were looking at at this point in time was a was an IT contract that had failed at, the, at its earliest stage. That is a stage at which the design obligations were, were preeminent and primary. Uh, Triple Point had failed to design the system um, at all, really, and failed to get to go live. So all we were talking about was the negligence of Triple Point in failing to get to that point. But what was coming and what, what this contract would have provided for for years to come would have been the maintenance obligations, the support uh, the 24-7 support systems, the maintenance, the upgrades, bug fixing, uh, and what Lady Arden, I think, has set out in a way which I think is, is, is useful as a, as a sort of guide for the future for this sort of contract and for uh, authority outsourcing and private outsourcing um, is a recognition that these contracts have two parts to their life. One is the pre-go-live and the other is post-go-live. And there are, as, as Matt said, as Lady Arden identified, obligations of result. Uh, both some some of them quite limited in the early stage, but they're much more important at the later stage. And if one's thinking about drawing analogies between the IT, an IT contract and a construction contract, I think the closest analogy here is probably sort of long-term relational contracts in the PFI world, PPP, build, own, operate, transfer um, contracts, like kind of the FIDIC gold contracts, for example, internationally where there's an obligation to design and build a capital asset, be it a physical one, like Rob said, or a technological one, like Rob said, and then to, to operate it for, for reward and hand it over at the end. And that's what we were seeing, I think, here. So in that sense, the review of the negligence obligations there in Lady Arden's judgment, I think, was a, a really useful way of looking at a, an IT contract. Lord Leggett's judgment, very quickly, I think is really important, uh, because I think what it does is indicates for... for for in a broader sense, beyond um, the specifics of this contract, uh, a view of the Supreme Court as to how um, the sort of can- the old old historic what we used to call the canons of construction of limitation exclusion clauses are being uh, not necessarily eroded, but but looked at in a much more modern fashion. Um, and Lord Leggett called this effectively the, 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 the movement towards what he called a wider Gilbert Ash principle, the idea that parties, I think as Matt said at the beginning, the parties are to be taken to write in their contract what they mean and what they intend to happen, and the court is there to interpret that and give effect to it. And so one doesn't try and construe a contract against the words. Um, in, in, it sometimes happened in the old days for limitation clauses and exclusion clauses. You give effect to the words. Um, so, having said that, I think Rob's going to talk about what it means for going forwards when one starts to draft the words. Thanks, James. That's the, that's the difficult bit, isn't it? Not, not a bit I'm normally involved in either. I'm normally looking at uh, what's gone wrong with the words. Um, I, I think, as, as, as Matt pointed out, actually, you know, whilst it's important to emphasise that each liquidated damages clause will be interpreted on its own wording, the, the Supreme Court judgment has restored that, that confidence as to the applicability of the, the previously recognised orthodox approach. Um, and, and I think that that gives parties a bit more comfort as to what they're looking at and, and, and they can look back at, at previous clauses and how they were construed and, and have, have a bit of confidence that that will remain so. Um, also, also I, think, I think if parties, particularly perhaps contractors, want to provide for something different uh, for example, that liquidated damages should should only apply to delayed work if it is actually completed before termination, um, or, or indeed perhaps that third category, the more the more controversial one that uh, Sir Rupert Jackson talked about as to whether liquidated damages should continue to apply after termination. Uh, 
then very clear and very express words are going to be necessary to capture and, and crystallise that departure from the norm. Um, I think we can take it from, from the Supreme Court judgment that courts are not going to allow accrued rights to be extinguished without it being very clear, very, very, very clear that that is what the parties intended. Um, I think we we have, like like many commentators, focused here largely on the impact of liquidated damages. And, and I think like like Matt and, and James have both said, actually, the the perhaps what is going to become more and more interesting is is the decision on the leg- negligence aspect. Um, I think, um, as, as James said there, the Supreme Court overturned the decisions of both lower courts on, on that issue. Um, and the Supreme Court panel itself was not unanimous on the point either. And so there's, there's probably plenty more to come there. Uh, but what, what I think it does show is it's a good reminder that the task of the court is as, as James said, to interpret the words the party have used fairly, applying the ordinary methods of, of contractual interpretation. And um, I think that means that if parties have agreed what is a bad deal, if that's what they've agreed, then that's what the court is going to enforce. And I think you know, part of the argument from Triple Point in this case was that the, the, um, the, the, the negligence point, I was saying, well, if, if you apply it in the way that PTT was saying, well, that drives a cart and horses through the through the provisions because al- almost any breach of this contract being a service contract is going to be a breach of the, the, the duty to exercise reasonable skill and care. Um, so I think, I think the importance again there is, 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 is going to be on the words that, it, that are used and the court's not going to save a party from a, from a bad deal necessarily if that, if that is what the deal is, if that, if that is how it is in black and white. Um, I, I guess a last word on that point on on, on negligence. I think, um, as James said, IT or other service contracts of the kind that are encountered in the PTT case would, you'd expect, inevitably involve an obligation to exercise reasonable care and skill. And so those who are drafting contracts should bear in mind that if they want to carve out negligence from a liability cap, then then what negligence do they mean? Um, you know, that, that really was the, the 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 core of the of the dispute here and the difficulty that each court had in trying to interpret what what the words were intended to mean do they do the word does the word in that clause mean contractual negligence tortious negligence or or both uh does it mean gross or simple negligence for example to the extent that there is a distinction between those two and and even uh, negligence under under what law, bearing in mind the fact that the services provided under under these kind of contracts will often be delivered in a, in a number of jurisdictions, and or the contracting parties themselves are from different jurisdictions and will have different understandings when they come to the table and, and are drafting the contract as to what negligence means to them. Uh, on that note, probably leaving more questions than answers, <laughs> I'm going to pass back over to, to Matt. Thanks, Rob. Uh, just c- coming back on that last point, because I think, you know, certainly from a practitioner's perspective, this, this question about negligence is, is one of the most interesting aspects of this case going forward. As somebody who, for my sins, uh, does sometimes draft these types of contracts, uh, for my part, I've, I found it, at least when I say these types of contracts, let me, let me qualify that. I sometimes draft construction contracts uh, rather than necessarily than IT contracts. And so certainly from a construction perspective, I thought it was particularly interesting and, dare I say, a tremendous effort by PTT to have got negligence into that clause. You know, if, if, if for me and for a client I was advising, I would really, you know, work very, very hard to try and keep negligence out of a liability cap because the whole point is, yes, you know, breach of... A, a, a contractual breach could well be, particularly with a services um, context, you're you're always in that sort of that ballpark of negligence. Um, so to then have that outside of the cap on damages of the contract, that's you know that's a huge potential uh, basket of risk. And as you rightly say, you know for these types of contracts, which are often international in nature um, that you're going to get very different understandings of what these sort these sorts of terminology mean so sort of caveat emptor for those of, of of you who are drafting these contracts and not getting strong advice from english qualified lawyers as to exactly what these sorts of terms might mean in terms of going forward so the, yeah, that for me at least from a from the perspective of a of a of a practical perspective and a drafting perspective is something to watch out for, um, and that's a, a real lesson to take from this case. More broadly, uh, in terms of um, 
how the decision sits in the sort of the canon of English law. Um, I still think it's it's a, a, a real encouragement for parties to pick English law um, as a as a, a really strong neutral third um, law. If it, you know, if it as in this case, you've got a, a Thai employer and, a, and an American contractor. If you want to find a neutral third law, then you know there's a really strong argument for picking English law. Precisely because I think this decision has has really reminded us of two things. Firstly, that English law and the orthodoxy of English law will always approach these types of contracts from the perspective that they really will, as much as possible, try to uh, honour the parties' agreement, um, recognise that the parties are commercial people who have made um, decisions about how they want their relationship to be in the contract, and it's not the position of the court to interfere with that. And so I do, certainly, you know, you come away from this judgment and you are reminded that that is still the orthodoxy of the uh, of, in English law and of the Supreme Court. It's, as as you said, Rob, it's not for the court to rewrite a bad bargain. If that's what the parties agreed. That's what the parties agreed. So that's I think that's a, a, an important point. The second point is to really just to admire the. I think the relative efficiency with which this has been dealt with through at the different stages, um, uh, and in particular, you know, if you think about the first instance judgment, you know, that was a very, very long, detailed, lengthy case, um, a very detailed judgment, and yet, you know, Mrs. Justice Shepherd produced, I think, a really excellent lucid judgment in about eight months, and I think she is to be hugely congratulated for that, um, and that, you know, more than anything is. You know, if for parties who are going to be putting English law in their contracts and potentially having uh, the, the jurisdiction of the English courts, um, that knowledge that you will get really high quality judgments actually in a really relatively quick time, um, that for you know more than anything is, I think, the probably the 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 parting shot that, that I would give on you know this particular case, Mike. Well, thank you very much, Matthew, and, and thank you also to all of all of our panelists for that hugely insightful and, um, dare I say, exhaustive um, uh, summary of the issues on this uh, this hugely in, important case, um, which I know that it will be um, of, of very uh, very great use to uh, practitioners, and um, I hope that all of all of you listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you all for listening, and goodbye.